You are listening to Humanities Unbound, a public humanities podcast produced by Taft Research Center, a center dedicated to excellence in humanities and social science research located at the University of Cincinnati. Taft Research Center is generously funded by the Charles Phelps Taft Memorial Fund. My name is Caitlin Lusher. I am a graduate assistant at the Taft Research Center and host the Research Spotlight series for Humanities Unbound. The Research Spotlight series focuses on the current Taft Center Fellows. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Isaac Campos, Associate Professor of History at the University of Cincinnati. Dr. Campos's research focuses on the history of Mexico and the illicit drug trade. joining me today, Dr. Campos. So today we're going to be talking about your research as a Taft Center Fellow this year. So um, I know from the the description of your research, uh, your research is in uh, the drug trade in Mexico, in the U.S., uh, from many different historical angles, including public perception about the effects of certain drugs like marijuana. So um, could you talk a little bit uh, just about your research that you were doing as a Taft Center Fellow, just to start? Sure, yeah, and thanks for having me. Um, so I'm right now working on a book about the history of drugs in the United States and Mexico, mostly about Mexico, but the, the relationship with the United States is really important, uh, between the years approximately 1910 and 1940. So this was a critical period in the development of the war on drugs in the 20th century, It sees the development of both international and domestic laws that lead to the rise of uh, illicit drug trafficking. It's a period that sees the beginnings, thanks to that illicit drug trafficking and uh, and these prohibitionist laws, the beginnings of um, what some people refer to as narco-corruption in both Mexico and the United States, uh, the connection between uh, drugs and corrupt public officials uh, or police and so forth. the rise of drug trafficking corridors, uh, the development of anti-drug discourses, um, the kind of fetishization of, of marijuana and opi- the opiates and cocaine as kind of the big three targets of drug war policies. So my research is kind of is uh, essentially trying to unravel how these developments occurred between 1910 and 1940. Uh, 1910 is um, really where we see the beginnings of the most important laws. 1940 is a year when Mexico actually tried to change course in the war on drugs by implementing a a morphine monopoly to um, allow opiate addicts to have what are called maintenance doses of opiates. That is, opiates that would allow them to function on a day-to-day basis. Um, And uh, the United States forced Mexico to uh, rescind that policy in 1940. And uh, and shortly thereafter, Mexico... um, began pursuing a more law enforcement um, oriented approach to drugs. So this is a really critical period in the development of what we come to know as the war on drugs in the 20th century. Okay, great. Thank you. So uh, can you talk a little bit about why you focus on Mexico in particular? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, drugs, illicit drugs have been extraordinarily important in Mexican history in in the modern era, particularly since the early 20th century. Um, Mexico has long been one of the major providers of illicit drugs to the United States, so these drugs bring in an enormous amount of revenue to Mexico and have done so for many decades. Um, 
illicit drugs and drug policies. Um, well, so that is um, drug policies that have produced these illicit drugs and they're then produced uh, illicit uh, drug trafficking cartels, as we often call them, um, have led to the development of enormous amounts of violence related to drugs in Mexico in the last um, decade or 15 years. Um, we think now that upwards of 200,000 people have been killed in drug um, drug war-related violence in Mexico wow. since 2006. So this is an enormously important issue in Mexico um, currently, but it has been really uh, for many, many decades. And so um, that's why the focus on Mexico, um, primarily. Right. Okay. So, um, you, you alluded to this a bit in, uh, your description about your research, but could you talk about how maybe Mexico's history with drugs is intertwined with mm -hmm. the United States, like in the past and, um, in the present, I guess, too. Sure. Well, in the present, uh, it's most clearly intertwined in a couple of ways. One, because Mexico is the most, um, most of the illicit drugs that come into the United States come from Mexico um, in, mm -hmm. in this contemporary period. Uh, and it's been that way for some drugs for a very long time. So Mexico, since the 1930s, had been the main supplier of marijuana to the United States. And then by the 1970s also was the main supplier of, um, of heroin. Um, on the other side of it, in the contemporary period, the enormous, uh, the extraordinary violence that's going on in Mexico today is mostly being carried out using weapons that are bought in the United States. So there's a traffic of arms uh, south from the United States into Mexico. So drugs going north, arms going south. And so these two histories are um, completely intertwined today. In the past, the two histories have also been intertwined. Uh, in, but in different ways. So in the late 19th century, beginning in the 1890s, for example, ideas from Mexico began coming to the United States and influencing how people understood drugs here. Uh, in particular, ideas about uh, the drug marijuana, which was associated in Mexico with madness and violence. And those ideas about marijuana began to spread to the, the U.S. in the 1890s, mostly through um, informal channels like the press, through the Associated Press and that kind of thing. Um, and this began to kind of lay the foundation of anti-marijuana ideas in the United States along. There are other influences as well, but Mexico plays a really big role in this. Um, so these histories have long been closely um, connected, and uh, developments in the U.S. usually have some kind of repercussion in Mexico and, and vice versa. Wow. Yeah, that's fascinating. I would have never, I would have never made that connection. You know, yeah. I, I remember uh, reading in um, a past interview that uh, that movie Reefer Madness uh -huh. was definitely very strongly influenced by some of these, um, these ideas that were passed over from Mexico. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so interesting because I've actually seen that movie. Yeah, it's hilarious to watch. Yeah, now, but um, it's something that like really has hung on mm -hmm. uh, it's just like not only a, like that movie is kind of a cultural icon and in a yeah. rather like satirical way but um just the ideas behind drugs in general uh, right. especially about marijuana is really still very prevalent yeah. well you know what's interesting about that movie is it was um it originally came out in the 1930s and very few people saw it i'm not sure anybody saw it in the 30s yeah. actually um <laughs> It was only it only became popular and well known in the 1970s, and it was actually re-released by the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws oh. as a um, essentially as a tool to make fun of older ideas about about right. marijuana. So um, that's actually I think had a really big impact on how people understand marijuana in in, um, in uh, the last you know 40 or 50 years. Yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you. 
so we're going to go back in time a little bit. Um, okay. So uh, in your current project, uh, you assert that Mexico was utilized as a drug distribution hub after the Opium Exclusion Act of 1909. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple of questions related to that. And the first one is, uh, what role does colonialism play in the beginnings of the Mexican drug trade? Well, um, a really large role, actually, but probably in ways that you might find surprising. So really a central component of the development of the Mexican drug trade was actually the story of opium in China in the 19th century. So um, famously, the um, Great Britain forced the Chinese to um, continuing allow, continue allowing um, opium imports um, through two opium wars in the at the end of the 1830s and the end of the 1850s. And these opium wars um, became famous worldwide due to um, publicity related to them carried out by missionaries and Chinese nationalists and, and a number of other actors. And this, the basic story was that China had been ruined essentially by opium and that opium had been forced on China by British imperialists. Mm -hmm. And this led to a international movement against opium by the turn of the 20th century. And um, this ultimately um, led to, in 1907, an agreement between Britain and China to end the um, trade in opium into China. That uh, treaty was really, really important because what ended up happening is there were many uh, producers of opium around Asia who had been supplying China with opium at the time. Most of it was coming originally from India, but then it would be processed in other places, places like Macau or Hong Kong and various other, um, various other uh, spots, most of them colonial uh, uh, properties of the, of the Europeans. And um, when this happened, these, these uh, various entities, and in the Mexican case, the one that's most important is the little uh, tiny um, uh, Portuguese colony of Macau on China's southern coast, Macau was um, pinched terribly by this because it had been uh, accustomed to sending um, huge amounts of opium to China and to other places, to Australia, to Canada, to the United States. And so after this 1907 agreement between Britain and China, Macau is kind of feeling the pinch of um, these, uh, these new prohibitions. And then the U.S. prohibits uh, opium imports in that, or smoking opium imports in 1909. And um, this leads... Uh, Macanese producers to begin shipping opium first to Mexico in order to smuggle it into the U.S. So this is really the beginning of Mexico's um, significant role in international drug trafficking. But also, interestingly, they send a lot of um, fake shipments of opium to Mexico. So they say they're going to Mexico because it was legal to import smoking opium still in Mexico. But actually what would happen is they would fill... Um, jars that were supposed to be full of smoking opium they would put they would uh, or cans they would fill them with molasses and actually take the smoking opium and smuggle it into china so mexico gets involved almost immediately after um at the beginnings of the um the uh, illicit international drug trade after the united states um passes this 1909 um, opium smoking exclusion act and this is has everything to do with um with colonialism going back especially to uh to great britain and china Right. So, um, yeah, my next question was about how um, there's a connection between the opium, tr opium trade in Mexico and how that shaped Mexico as a uh, drug distribution hub. But it sounds like uh, that really wonderful, like, uh, thorough explanation you have kind of answers that question mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, so I guess one uh, follow-up question I have then is, um, you know, how, how does this history with opium – uh, 
what what kind of influence does it have today or is it kind of like uh, is it just sort of in the background or were there some major major things that happened during that period that are still influencing the trade oh sure well the the that story of of Britain supposedly forcing opium on the Chinese that has continued really to resonate so it created a basic template about drug history this notion that um, that drug users were the victims of greedy either imperialists or it could have been greedy capitalists or it could have been any number of other uh, greedy actors and that they essentially had no agency in their drug taking but were actually had this these um, drugs forced on them so it was something that really resonated in the early 20th century and I think continues to do so today um, indeed today the current opiate epidemic I think you could argue has a very similar narrative arc which is that there were these um, greedy pharmaceutical companies that forced opiates on all these users and these users became addicted uh, um, to no fault of their own and therefore um, we need to do something, you know, this is a crisis, and, we need to, and obviously there are many, many tens of thousands of deaths, so it very clearly is a crisis, but it follows very much the same narrative arc, and I don't think that's a coincidence. So that's one thing. The other thing is these laws that began to be passed um, during this period, so beginning with the Hague um, International Opium Convention of 1912, which followed on the heels of um, an earlier uh, meeting in, or international meeting in Shanghai in 1909, set, began to set the... Um, the foundation for international drug control, and um, and those we still live with the international drug laws that are connected, um, going back to 1912, um, to that period, and um, and same with um, various uh, laws that were passed in both the U.S. and Mexico during that period, set precedents that we continue to live with today. So, um, so this period is really crucial for understanding what's going on now. Awesome, yeah, thank you so much. I, I'm learning so much just listening yeah. to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I. <laughs> hope the book is as useful. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I've actually, um, when I learned about what your research was about, I actually told some people about it, and they're like, oh my gosh, it's so fascinating. So there are some people who are waiting to hear yeah, this well, episode. Good. Well, maybe I'll sell the book or two. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, so um, I guess we're going to hurdle forward to the present again. Um, so <clears throat> uh, I guess... This is probably a big question, but uh, how would you respond to popular portrayals of Mexico and the drug trade? And um, are there specific examples you could give of accurate or inaccurate depictions? Mm. Well, you know, um, I recently watched uh, Narcos Mexico on Netflix, which you may have seen. Um, and it wasn't bad. I mean, you know, there were some... Um, errors here and there of and in fact when I first started watching it I thought I wasn't going to be able to watch it because I was too close to my research and I was going to sit there nitpicking everything <laughs> um, but then I got sucked in and I watched it and it was pretty good uh, you, you know with most of the basics and um, you know the central narrative in that in that uh, episode is about the essentially um, narco corruption as we were talking about before and the, and the deep connections between drug traffickers and Mexican state officials in the 1980s and that is essentially accurate that um, now there's a much bigger story than that uh, but that that's essentially accurate so I think um, that portrayal of narcos isn't too bad and I think portrayals you see these days are relatively I mean in most cases I think relatively um, I don't want to say they're necessarily accurate, but they're more <laughs> accurate than they were when, for example, I was a kid in the 1980s, mm -hmm. and um, drug traffickers would be um, would be portrayed in much more, usually much more clearly um, 
racist or much more clearly um, stereotyped fashion than they are today. So I don't think it's as bad as it used to be. Clearly, I don't spend a lot of time watching popular depictions of drugs, in part, again, because it's so close to my um, <laughs> my work that I often find myself, I can't really enjoy it. It's mostly, it's me just it, being critical, which isn't a lot of fun in my spare time. <laughs> uh, and I do plenty of reading about um, these things uh, during you know the work day. So, um, but anyway, I don't think it's it's too bad, and I think Narcos Mexico is actually pretty entertaining. So, uh, follow up question to that is, um, so like meth, heroin, fentanyl, carfentanil are huge problems in the U.S. right now. So, um, how might your research inform us on possibly like appropriate or inappropriate responses to mm. these issues? Well, I think it's really important to recognize that the rise of fentanyl as a major recreational substance has been directly related to drug policy. And um, it's a pattern that we've seen over and over historically. So earlier we were talking about the, um, the bans on smoking opium in the 19th and early 20th century. Smoking opium, as far as uh, intox intoxicating drugs go, is not really that bad for you. Um, you can become dependent on it, but it's um, hard to kill yourself smoking opium. Um, it's, uh, it, it, in comparison, say, to heroin, it's relatively benign. Uh, but what happened when these bans on smoking opium began to happen is that it became very convenient to begin smuggling and pushing heroin rather than smoking opium because heroin comes in much smaller packages, um, much more easy to smuggle. And, um, and thus, a lot of users who had been using smoking opium and had become dependent on it uh, began turning to heroin. We see this in, uh, or morphine. We see this in China, and we see this in the U.S. as well in the 1920s, where in a city like New York City, there was a fad among um, among a lot of high society types to have these opium smoking parties and this kind of thing. Right. Um, and many people became dependent doing that on smoking opium, you know, if not every day, um, a couple times a week or, or, or things like that. And when bans on smoking opium occurred, um, the dealers started only providing heroin, and so a lot of these people switched to be becoming injection drug users using heroin. It's much easier to kill yourself taking heroin, and, um, and that's mm -hmm. what we saw then. Well, recently we had, of course, this epidemic that started with overprescribing of opiates in pill form, le leading to a crackdown in the, over, uh, uh, in the um, prescribing of these pill drugs, which led to an epidemic of heroin use, which um, drug traffickers began pushing then as a substitute for the... Um, for the pharmaceutical opiates that people could no longer get their hands on. And then there was a crackdown on heroin, and then fentanyl, which is a much more potent substance, therefore much easier to transport in tiny little packages, um, began coming on the market and began to be, uh, replace heroin in, um, in, uh, in importance. So all of these things always relate to our policies. Our policies lead to reactions, when um, and, um, and this is something that, policy analysts have understood for a really long time. If you go back to the 19th century, people understood that bans on smoking opium would lead to smuggling. This was very well understood. Um, we've known this for a very, very long time. So I think that can, um, can inform uh, our current uh, debates on this, that um, stronger law enforcement, more drug war policies usually don't result in much that's very good for the people who are mixed up with these drugs and many other people as well. Right. So um, could you maybe give a quick example of some of these like rules and like policies that have not turned out well? Sure. Well, just uh, 
so drug prohibition in, in, in and of itself. So right. let me give you the example from Mexico in the 1930s. In the 1930s, Mexico, like um, most countries, had rules prohibiting the distribution of, um, of powerful opiates, morphine, heroin, and so forth. This led to a black market, an illicit market, in the sale of these drugs um, for users in, in Mexico. And uh, so you have a lot of injection drug users who spend their whole lives, basically all their time, trying to make sure that they're going to have a regular supply of these uh, injected drugs. A, uh, there was a, a, a kind of iconoclastic uh, psychiatrist in Mexico by the name of uh, Leopoldo Salazar Viniegra in the 30s, and he pointed out that all these prohibitionist policies were doing was enriching drug traffickers, pushing drug users into the arms of the traffickers because they became dependent on the traffickers, um, and, um, and uh, doing very little to stop the illicit use of these drugs. They continued to be used nonetheless. And so what he recommended was a state monopoly. Mexico would have a state monopoly and s essentially sell morphine to um, pure morphine to, um, to mostly heroin addicts, uh, opiate addicts. And um, in exchange for the um, addicts signing up for this program and um, agreeing to talk to doctors when they came in to, for their doses and that kind of thing, essentially keeping them in contact with doctors. And what he argued essentially was, look, we're not going to stop people from taking these drugs. So let's get let's destroy the drug traffickers, get rid of the illicit traffic, and then do our best through um, medicine to try to help these people rather than um, trying to get them to stop through law enforcement, which which never works. This is something that was already, like I said, um, essentially argued back in the 19th century that law enforcement approaches wouldn't work, and it continues to be argued today because um, because Salazar Villanueva was essentially right. And so nowadays we have some alternatives. We have, um, you, you know, methadone um, maintenance programs and that kind of thing, where um, where some users can um, can uh, take these regular daily doses of opiates to um, uh, to not go to the black market. Right. And so that's a step I think in the right direction. But the problem essentially is when you have a black market, you're going to get. Uh, or excuse me, when you have prohibitionist policies, you're going to have the development of a black market. The black market is ultimately going to be ruled by violence and um, and by characters who have very um, little interest in the health of the users themselves. So um, so I think that's uh, those are the kind of policies. In, in my view, it's very important to try to keep private business, if possible, out of the market for intoxicants whenever possible because um, these businesses end up having an interest in producing heavy users of the drugs, whether it's alcohol or cigarettes or uh, heroin or marijuana, whatever it is, their interest is in creating heavy users because in all of these markets, the heavy users are the ones who buy most of the product that's available on the market. Right, yeah, so when you were talking, I was thinking of two different things, um, or I guess maybe more than two, but mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing I was thinking of is um, it's so fascinating to hear um, about, I mean, how drug prohibition didn't work as far back as the 30s, and yet mm -hmm. people are still trying it. Right. And also thinking about how, um, you know, we obviously saw in the U.S., for example, that prohibition of alcohol only led to organized crime, and mm -hmm. it really, like, just was very destructive. So it's interesting that we see we saw and learned that what happens when you, you know, prohibit alcohol, like, you know, it, you know, it can produce crime. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that... Um, 
you know, it, it's like what well, we still try to do the same thing with certain drugs. Yeah. And I realize that there, it's part of it is because there's a lot of like misconception and misunderstandings. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought I thought it was the, the second thing I was thinking about was how. Um, you know, government regulation or, you know, big business regulation of drugs. Because um, I was thinking specifically about how some states, like like Ohio, actually, um, have tried to um, kind of state regulate, like marijuana, for mm-hmm. example. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm failing to think of, like, examples at, the, at this very moment. Uh-huh. But um, I know one reason why um, marijuana was not legalized for recreational use in Ohio was because many people um, – didn't agree with a you know large government entity like having control over it. Well, it wasn't a government. It was it was going to be a private. Yes, uh, business that's what. That yeah, was going to that's what control. I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. But that that I don't think that was mostly because people didn't agree with private industry being involved. It was that they didn't agree in a private um, uh, private entity having a monopoly over it. Right. 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 And Thank I you think for people, correcting. Yeah, oh, that's okay. And I think that um, I mean one thing that's really important to clarify about about all these policies and about drugs, including alcohol in the 1920s, is that um, drugs do cause a lot of public health problems. I mean, they really oh, do. Yeah. So um, deaths from cirrhosis in the, during Prohibition plummeted. All right. So there's an argument that Prohibition of alcohol actually worked in, um, for some things. It worked mm-hmm. for reducing deaths from cirrhosis. Now, it caused lots of other problems as well. True. It's really important to distinguish between saying that we shouldn't have Prohibition and, um, and saying that um, we don't need to worry about drugs. Drugs aren't that big of a deal. It's all of a, you know, it's all been made up. It's all a, 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 a fantasy that they're so dangerous. Some of them are very dangerous. Heroin is very dangerous. It's very easy to kill yourself taking heroin, right? Um, so that's why my d- position is that, um, look, this is a, and it's probably a position that's just way too complicated for politics, which is that, look, these drugs can be dangerous. For some users, they wind up being um, deadly. Um, so, what we need to do is we need to get private interests out of the business of trying to promote them, A, um, but we also need to get government out of the business of trying to completely prohibit them because we know that that's a failure, and we have to find a kind of middle ground where for the the worst um, addicts who can't um, stop themselves from trying to um, acquire a dose of the drugs, well, perhaps maybe we need to provide a safe dose of the drugs for those people, um, but we also don't need you know, Budweiser out um, trying to sell uh, heroin, you know, uh, during the Super Bowl, right? That's probably yeah, not a great idea not. either. In fact, I would argue that it's not a great idea for Budweiser to be even selling beer during the Super Bowl. <laughs> uh, anytime private industry is involved in these kinds of intoxicants, usually bad things follow. Um, so um, anyway, but but that's very complex, and it's hard to get people to um, to deal with something that's so complicated, which is that the vast majority of people who take these drugs don't have terrible consequences. But there is a significant minority of them who do have terrible consequences. And if you know an addict, for example, it's uh, really hard for people to say, well, geez, um, I, I think that that substance should be uh, available to other people to use because if you see the negative consequences, the negative consequences can just be so horrible that, mm-hmm. um, that um, it's a very tricky problem. It's a very tricky problem. Right. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for clarifying. I think I kind of muddled my words there a oh, little bit. Oh, that's okay. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, we all do it. Uh, uh, our current president has vowed to keep out so-called bad actors or bad hombres coming in from the Mexico-U.S. Uh, border and that our southern border is a pipeline for vast quantities of illegal drugs and that he is willing to help Mexico wage war, in all caps, 
on the drug cartels. So, uh, what does your research tell us about the truth and value, or lack thereof, mm -hmm. of this approach? Well, we've already talked about the failures of the war on drugs. Waging right. um, more war on drugs is not going to solve the problem. It just increases the violence in Mexico. Um, it just um, it, it does very little to reduce the number of users. Uh, and this has been shown over and over and over again by pretty much every serious analyst who's ever looked at the, the history or the president of the war on drugs. Pretty much everybody who has looked at this seriously agrees with that. The war on drugs is mostly failing. Now, we, uh, we disagree on what we should do about it, but pretty much everybody agrees with that. Um, and he's right that, the, that a lot of drugs are coming over the southern border, but it's not because there isn't a wall or because they're being smuggled in, in, um, in, uh, in creative ways, though they are being smuggled in creative ways. Most of the illegal drugs that are coming over the border are actually coming through illegal ports of entry because there are mm. millions and millions and millions of border crossings uh, every year. And... Uh, and here's a statistic that I like to, to provide to students. Um, something like, and I may not have my stats like right up to the current moment, but um, as of a few years ago, there were something like 5 million um, border crossings each year of, uh, of uh, tractor trailers, so semi-trucks across the, from Mexico into the United States. All right, something like 5 million, uh, which actually strikes me as a little bit, seems like low number, but that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Something like 5 million. Only 20% of these, are um of these trucks are actually inspected mm. okay so that means four million semi trucks a year across the board and that's just semi trucks there are many many millions more passenger vehicles and so forth. semi trucks cross the border four million without being inspected you can supply the entire u.s market for cocaine um with um 13 semi trucks full oh. of cocaine wow. all right four million a year across the border Okay, so, yeah. so the idea that um, that uh, somehow a wall or or a stricter border uh, immigration regulations are going to stop drug trafficking is just utterly, uh, you know, fantasy. <laughs> um, we are we're addicted to a couple things. We're addicted to drugs in this country. We're also addicted to free trade in this country. <laughs> um, so unless we're willing, and we're also um, addicted, and I would call this an addiction, I would call this dedication, we're also dedicated to um, uh, civil liberties, and um, and being dedicated to all those things at once does not really go well together. <laughs> you can't really completely stop the use of drugs if you're dedicated to civil liberties. China finally cracked down on uh, opiate uh, use in the early 1950s under the Communist Party when they were willing to um, execute enough people um, on, uh, along with a number of other measures, to, mm -hmm. uh, but heavy-handed, all of them, in order to stop the trade um, and had essentially closed borders and so forth. Um, if we're dedicated to an open society, to open, uh, relatively open borders, at least for trade, we're not going to be able to stop the traffic of drugs into the United States, particularly tiny drugs that come in small little packages like fentanyl or heroin and so forth. Um, at the same time, you could make the same argument that there is a um, flood of arms crossing from the United States into Mexico um, that is leading to the, you know, the murders of hundreds of thousands of people uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. So... Um, so there's a, a kernel of truth in what the president says, but it's just a kernel, and it's um, and it's lacking an enormous amount of context to make it actually true. Right. Yeah. Well, that's not surprising. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's really interesting that you say that because um, 
you know, for all this talk about like all the violence coming from Mexico, it's like no one is acknowledging the fact that the U.S. is extremely complicit mm-hmm. in all that. Well, some people are. I mean, there yeah. are a lot of critics who keep pointing this out, but it doesn't. Um, uh, it it I, I I well, I wouldn't say that it's not making any difference. I think that um, strong critiques of the war on drugs over the last, um, especially thirty years since the early nineteen nineties, have been extremely effective in changing the way we talk about drugs Mm -hmm. so the current opiate epidemic is a case in point Uh, a lot of people argue that the reason that uh, currently opiate users are being treated more like a public health problem rather than a um, criminal problem is because um, the epidemic started out as being one that mostly affected um, white people in the u.s Mm. Um, i think there's a something to that but I think what people miss is that since the early 1990s, after the high point of the 1980s drug war that that um, that so harshly uh, attacked and um, and criminalized, especially black users of drugs and especially black users of, of uh, crack cocaine, a lot of lessons were learned from that in the 1980s by reformers. And reformers began in the early 1990s to put a lot of energy and a lot of money behind educating the public that these kind of drug war approaches don't really work. And I think that's had a huge impact. And so today we have this uh, this opiate epidemic going on, and it's and mostly from both parties, people are arguing uh, that we need more, at least for the users, we need more treatment and less criminalization. So, um, so it's not like it was back in the '80s where it just seemed like these arguments couldn't get through. I think the arguments actually are getting through, but there are a, a huge number of interests that make it um, very difficult to. And it's also, like I said before, a very uh, complicated problem. And so it's a complicated problem that's hard to find a good solution. And there are also an enormous number of interests who, um, who, uh, who, who have an interest in um, maintaining the status quo. So that's why it's difficult to get reform. But reform on most issues in um, and, and a democracy like ours takes a long time. It doesn't just come overnight. Right. Thank you so much. Um, well, one final question. So um, as a center fellow for this year, mm-hmm. um, could you just talk a little bit how the Taft Center has benefited your research so far? Oh, geez. Well, I mean, when you're writing a, a book, there's just nothing like a large block of time where you can do nothing but think about the book and go down research um, you know research uh, trails that might you might not have other had, otherwise had time to go down uh, I've recently for example been um, digging in really digging into this um, question of opium in Asia which I knew the basic story before but I had never really really read the literature ex- extremely closely but now that I found that it has had such an impact on Mexican history because of the Taft fellowship and the time that I've been afforded I've had time to come over here to the library and um, and um, go through the stacks and really really dig into that history and be um, as well informed as as I possibly can on um, on something that somebody might not um, immediately think is going to be relevant to my uh, work though I found through all this time that I have that it, wow indeed it is extremely relevant to my work so that's been uh, invaluable and then of course there's the you know the um, the actual uh, camaraderie of having other fellows at the center who are um, also working on major projects and um, being able to talk to them about what they're doing or ask them, uh, you know, how they would handle a certain, uh, you know, whatever writing conundrum or whatever it might be. So, um, so it's great. This fellowship is, um, it's a, it's a real privilege to be able to have this for, for a whole year and spend a year at the Taft Center working on something like this. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this interview. Thank you. 
music for Humanities Unbound is Reverie Small Theme and You'll Never Know Where You'll Wake Up, both by Ghost and licensed by the Creative Commons. Humanities Unbound is hosted and executively produced by the Taft Research Center Director, Dr. Amy Lind. Sean Keating Crawford is a producer and manager, and Caitlin Lusher is a producer and the editor for the podcast. Technical equipment and support are provided by the Student Technical Resources Center at the University of Cincinnati and the STRC Director, Jay Sennard. Episode transcripts are transcribed by Carrie Eason and are available on the Taft Research Center website. Stay tuned for more episodes of Humanities Unbound.